Hebrews 13 from verse 9 Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Now in verse 9 to verse 16 of the part that we've just read, he has the idea of sacrifices and offerings. Um, and this has been emphasized and taught on all through the book of Hebrews. But he sums up some important points here. What does he say in verse 9, firstly? What's the first command in verse 9? Hmm. Do not be carried away by what? By false teachings. It says do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Now, anyone, does anyone have an idea what these strange teachings were? You see it in the rest of the verse. Hmm. All kinds of rules and regulations about what you might eat and not eat. Today, of course, you still get people who call themselves Christians who don't obey this verse. They make all these wonderful rules about don't eat this and don't eat that. But what does he say? He says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? By grace, not by foods. So he says, what you need is not to eat the right foods. It's not to have laws about don't eat pork and do eat this and don't eat that. Your heart needs to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, not by laws about foods, not by the law of Moses. Because laws simply won't get you to heaven. Trying to obey the law of Moses will not earn you a place in heaven. And those laws do not strengthen the heart. Because he says, 
the people who were so occupied were not benefited. The people who kept all the laws about, oh, eat this and don't eat that, they were not benefited. He says plainly it's worthless, it means nothing. But the heart must be strengthened by grace. So, your hope must be in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the grace that God shows through Jesus. The problem with law keeping is that you're trying to earn your own place in heaven or you're trying to be more holy by not eating certain things but laws don't produce holiness and laws don't earn a place in heaven. It is the grace of God working in a person which changes a person. Um, and for salvation you need grace to become a Christian you need grace but to grow as a Christian you also need grace it's not like you start off with grace and then somewhere along the line you start adding laws and then you progress no it's always by grace but do take note that this is not a lawless grace it's not a grace that just makes you sin with impunity sin without caring it um, is a grace which changes your heart which strengthens your heart to love the Lord more and as you love the Lord more you live for him more people never understand this thing they say oh but but if if it's all grace then the people are just going to live like they want to and you see it in many places in the churches because they, they preach a grace message but they preach not a full Bible message, then people just say oh, there's forgiveness, there's grace, we can just sin like we want and God will forgive that's not what grace does, grace changes your heart to love the Lord to obey the Lord and even though you are weak even though you don't always manage to follow follow him fully still you desire to please him in all things, that's what grace produces in people but it's only grace that can strengthen your heart Legalism kills. Trying to make yourself better by keeping laws and rules just kills. It, it drains the life out of you. But it's when God works in you, when you are fully convinced of the grace of God, of the love of God, when you look at the cross continually, when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ continually and, and you see Him as your only hope and, and you remember the love that He showed at the cross. It's as you do that which you are strengthened to um, walk the Christian life. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. And then he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat so he is saying those who serve the tabernacle cannot eat from the same altar as we eat from so he's saying if you want to keep on worshipping God through the law of Moses you cannot partake of the Christian gospel that's what he is saying here, he is saying there is a clean and clear break, you cannot try to approach God through the economy of Moses, through the system of Moses and approach him through Christ because he says those who want to keep on serving in the tabernacle they have no right to eat from the altar we have no right to eat from Well, the, the problem is as long as they are um, doing temple worship or the tabernacle worship, as long as they are doing that, they are, every time that they bring a sacrifice, they are saying that the real sacrifice hasn't yeah. been sacrificed yet. They, they say that Christ, Christ's offer isn't sufficient because they still need to bring offerings. So that's what, that 
is what the big problem is with those who continue in in the Jewish system. Um, and I won't go into that too much, but I'll just mention it. That's why I find it totally strange, the idea that some people teach that somewhere in the future the Jews will be saved again by a new temple worship because those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat from the altar of Christ. Um, and then the idea of the altar, I don't think you can say, oh, this is specifically the cross or this is specifically this object or that object. It's it's the idea of the sacrifice of Christ, the way that we approach God through Christ. That, that is the idea of the altar here, when he says we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And then it's very interesting what he does next to, to prove this or to illustrate this. He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, you can um, note Leviticus 16 verse 27. Leviticus 16 describes the great day of atonement which uh, the writer is referring to and has referred to many times in the book. And it specifically says that the bull and the goat which were brought in on that day to make atonement um, which were slaughtered and their blood was sprinkled on the altar they had to be burned outside the camp. No one could eat of them. Remember, many of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they brought the sacrifice, but actually they ate the sacrifice themselves. They might offer a certain portion to God, but then they would eat the bull or the goat that they brought. But the sin offering made on the great day of atonement, that no one could eat from. So, he's saying... Those who serve the tabernacle can't eat of our sacrifice because they can't eat of the sin offering. You see, he's, he's illustrating it once again. It's, it's not like a hard proof or something, but, but it's an illustration. The sin offering couldn't be eaten. The sin offering was taken outside the camp. And then Jesus also suffered outside the camp. He says in verse 12, So he ties in that idea. Jesus suffered outside the camp and the sin offering couldn't be eaten under the old uh, dispensation or under the Old Testament. So those who want to keep on serving God through the Old Testament can't eat of the altar that we eat of. So that's quite involved logic there. Um, uh, I saw a mention of this in some commentary and it helps. Otherwise, verse 11 seems to be sort of out of place if you just read it. But that's the idea which he's saying that, well, you can't eat of the sin offering in the Old Testament. So he's using that as an illustration. So what does he say about Jesus in verse 12? That is the sin offering. And he suffered outside the gate. Um, where was Golgotha? It was outside Jerusalem. He was led out of the city into the desolate place. Well, there were a lot of people there, but I mean it's not the city. It was outside the gate. So, in the Old Testament, the the sacrifices for sin, the sin offerings, were burnt outside the camp. Jesus suffered outside the gate. And then he says in verse 13, So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now the obvious first application is 
You have to leave the camp of Israel. You have to leave the system of Moses to go to Jesus. Because he, he speaks about the camp in verse 11 and then he goes to the gate in verse 12 but he goes back to the camp in verse 13. So he's saying once again what he's been saying all through the book. Stop trusting Moses and start trusting Christ for salvation. These Hebrew or the recipients of the letter were um, clearly in danger of going back to Moses and he's saying no. Let's go to Christ outside the camp. Let, let's leave the camp. The offering in the Old Testament was burned outside the camp. Jesus suffered outside the gate. Let us leave Moses and his system. Let us go outside and bear his reproach. Be reviled with him. And I'll get back to verse 13, but in verse 12 he also says that Jesus suffered that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. Sanctify means set apart. That he might set the people apart for God. Now you can't be set apart for God and for Christ if you still want to go back to Moses. Um, What's the right word now? I'll have to... No, it's not the idea of cleansing. It is the idea of setting apart. So, in kant te stel, om apart te stel vir speciale gebruik. Afgesonder. Wat sê hulle reinig daar? Hulle sê, in die volk is daar bloed, kan hulle sonder daar reinig. Ok. Well, the ideas are closer together than what I might make it sound because he, he sets you apart from your sin and he sets you apart onto God. Um, so he does cleanse us and sanctify us um, through his own blood. The Amplified says he might purify and consecrate people through his own blood and set them apart. So it's more than a set apart, there's an added to it that I think is a... Yes, absolutely. He sets people apart by his own blood, but he also cleanses. Um, Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, So, maybe just ignore what I said about sanctify a moment ago. Um, The blood of Jesus purifies us from our sin and it sets us apart to live for God. Um, it's important to remember both. Many people like the idea of my sin stains being washed away but I still want to belong to myself and it doesn't work like that. If his blood cleanses you then his blood also buys you. If his blood cleanses you, he also owns you. You can't say, oh, he's forgiven my sin so that I can go on sinning and now I've got this wonderful fire insurance that covers all my sin. No, his blood cleanses us from our sin, frees us from the bondage to the law and the bondage to sin so that we might live to God not that we can live to ourselves. And the sanctification comes through the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9 says, there's no remission of sins. And the blood makes atonement by virtue of the life, Leviticus 17 says. It's not just the um, physical fluid that flew, that um, flow, flowed from his body, it's the fact that his life was laid down. His blood going out of his body showed that he's laid down. His life is endured death for us. A death has occurred. A bloody sacrifice has been made for our sin. 
So once again, Peter says that you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Um, it cost Jesus Christ everything. It, it cost him everything he had. He gave himself so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be cleansed, and so that we might know God. So if you take that, then you then you take Jesus and you have to live for him. You can't just take the benefits of this and say, I'm going to live for myself. It doesn't work like that. So Jesus paid the ultimate price, and what a price he paid. And he suffered outside the gate. And he says, we must go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. I said the first obvious implication in this context is, don't try the law of Moses. Believe in Christ. Don't go back to Moses. But there's also the wider idea, which he picks up in verse 14, then of um, suffering outside this world. Um to be in the world but not of the world. You can't just be part of the world system, just be part of this life, this world, and say, I follow Christ. No, we must go outside the camp bearing his reproach. And just to see, kind of bearing his reproach and the because it's a difficult concept to be having got your right word. Oh, bearing his reproach. Um, um they are. So, the Christian, Jesus said in John 15, if the world loved me, it would love you also. But what did the world do? Well, crucify Jesus. So if the world hates you, bear in mind that they hated me first. Um, True Christians will suffer persecution. True Christians will not sit comfortable in this world. If you're sitting comfortably in this world, then there's something seriously wrong. Because, what does he say in verse 14? Here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. If you're, if you're happy with this life, and, and, oh, this is where life is at, and life is just so good, and I just, I just want this life, I just want to cling to this life, then you've got a major problem because this is not the lasting city. Jesus suffered outside the city of Jerusalem. And so he says, we don't have a lasting city here. All the stuff in this world will be burnt up. All the stuff of this world will disappear and will um, be used up and will vanish and be shaken and taken away but the kingdom of God is eternal and therefore we must set our hearts on eternity on the eternal things on the things which will last and that is the city which is to come so it's not here fully yet if you have the Holy Spirit then you have the first fruits then you have the pledge, then you know something of the powers of the age to come but the fullness is still to come now once again if I read this I don't quite understand these kingdom now dudes who want the kingdom now because he says here we don't have a lasting city but we are inheriting an imperishable kingdom a kingdom which cannot be shaken well then it's not here it's still coming. And we've had this um, in the book, this idea of the city, the real city, the real Jerusalem, not these shaky things of this world which will disappear, which will grow old, which will um, come to nothing in the end. We must seek that which is eternal. We must live for that which is eternal. We must work for that which is eternal, pray for that which is eternal, suffer for that which is eternal, give 
for that which is eternal. We must seek treasure in heaven. We must invest in eternity. We must um, live as people who really believe there is a great kingdom coming. The challenge of Christianity, of real Christianity, is to live in this world as a citizen of the kingdom which is to come. It is to live in this world and to turn the other cheek because you believe that God is really in control. It is to spend money here on things which you can't see the benefit of now but knowing that it has an eternal reward, missions and helping the poor and things like that. And we we have to seek that we are seeking the city which is to come. Once again, where is your heart? Is your heart on this life? Is your heart on on your kingdom which you want to build here? Or is your heart really set on the eternal kingdom? Are you expecting the coming of Christ? Are you looking forward to eternity and to the eternal kingdom? We have responsibilities in this world which we should keep. We We have to live in this world but we must not live for this world. We must live for the kingdom which is to come. And if we do that, we are going to bear reproach with Christ. We are going to be persecuted because the world hates those who don't live for the world. The world loves those who live for the world. When teachers come and they and they preach a message which is worldly, then the people flock to hear it. If a guy comes and he tells you, oh, here are the strings you've got to pull God with to get a lot of money, then the people say, oh, I want to know. When with the students, when a church has a um, series on relationships, oh, then Everyone packs in because everyone wants to know. Maybe these Christians have got an idea how to find the perfect husband or wife. You know, then everyone says, yeah, no, I want to know about that. When people preach for a message for this world, then, then people are all king. But when they preach the message of, of following Christ, laying down your life, taking up your cross daily, then people say, oh, that sounds a bit Hectic and what? Radical, fanatic, enthusiastic. Um, so the world hates those who do not play to the world's game. And if you live for Christ in this world, you will have it tough. But he says, bear that reproach gladly. One of the big challenges in our society, there are many other examples, but one of the big challenges in our society is this secularism. This All religions are the same. This democracy, this tolerate everyone. And we sit with so many people who, oh, in church they are Christian, in their private life they, they believe, uh, they, they are keen for Christ, but in the public sphere you can't speak about it in the public sphere you can't live that out oh business is business and religion is religion you know that kind of thing um, this is one of the big places where where one really has to obey Christ and live for Christ live in this crazy world this business world this secular world for Christ and not just play the game oh yeah I, I believe but I can't say that in in public, that kind of thing. Um, because the world is trying to force everyone into its mold of saying all religions are the same. But you can't say all religions are the same and say Jesus is the only way. So then you've got to decide which one you believe. And if you believe that Jesus is the only way, then Jesus stays the only way when you're in business or when you're in the secular world. And it's the challenge how to live that out, but it must be lived out. Christians can't just 
stop being Christians in the public sphere or in the business world. And, and that's one of the big places in our modern society where we have to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Because if you act in a Christian way in business, then you know you're going to get a lot of trouble. If you act in a Christian way in the public sphere, then you are going to get in a lot of trouble. As long as you say love and peace and charity, it will be alright. But the moment you say Jesus is the only way, then no, 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 that can't work because then you're saying the Muslims are wrong. And that's just one example. But we must live all of our lives for Christ in all spheres of life. We spheres of life. We must um, live for Christ and know that we will suffer if we do that. He's not saying live for Christ and the angels are going to help you and it's just all going to be wonderful. He's saying live for Christ and suffer for Christ because Christ suffered for you. And it's all worthwhile if you know that you are reaping an eternal reward, if you know that you're storing up an eternal reward. But if you lose this eternity perspective, then you won't live like you have to live in this world. So he said in verse 9 to verse 14, he was saying about the Old Testament sacrifices not being good enough and those who bring them, they can't eat off our altar But then he goes on with this idea of sacrifices in verse 15 and 16. And he says, we as Christians in the New Testament have to bring sacrifices. But what are those sacrifices? What is the the sacrifice that he mentions in verse 15? Hmm, The sacrifice of praise to God. And what is that? How does he explain it further? Mm. Mm. the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name or that confess his name Um, so the first kind of sacrifice that we should bring we shouldn't be bringing goats and calves for sin that's done and dusted that's Old Testament Jesus has fulfilled that all what we should be doing is praising God and thanking God. We should be confessing Christ, confessing the name of Christ. We should be openly, gladly confessing that Jesus Christ is the one, that He is the Savior, that Jesus Christ has paid my ransom, that Jesus Christ is Lord And we should be giving thanks to Him. We should be praising Him for what He has done. We should be praising Him for this great, um, great and awesome work that He did when He took our sins upon Himself, when He gave Himself at the cross. We should be thanking Him for what He does. We should be acknowledging Him as the source and the supplier of all good things. We should be acknowledging Him as the only Savior, We should be giving Him glory as the Lord of all, as the Creator and the Sustainer of all. In that way we should be praising Him. And the idea of confessing then says publicly. It's not just about singing songs in the church. That's good. It must be done. It's wonderful. We should praise Him with song in a gathering of believers but that's not the sum total of praising God God should be praised in your everyday life He should be acknowledged He should be thanked and glorified even in front of people who don't like to know about Him so that's the first kind of sacrifice that we should bring Uh, praise, thanksgiving confession of Christ and then what is the second kind of sacrifice which he mentions in verse 16 Mm. doing good and sharing and he says God is pleased 
with those kind of sacrifices. Remember Jesus said, Inasmuch as you have done this unto the least of my brothers, you have done it unto me. When you help poor believers, when you share with those in need, it's a sacrifice which God is pleased with. He says we must not neglect doing good. Don't say, oh, that's just something I'll do by and by. Um, there's so much opportunity to do good. Do it. Use the opportunities to do good. It's easy to grow weary of doing good because there are so many people who misuse you, who abuse you. Um, but we must not grow weary of doing good. We must not neglect doing good. And this is not about doing good to be thanked by people. That's often, you do good and you do good and no one appreciates it and then you stop doing it. But for who are you doing it then? Are you doing it to be noticed by men? Do good even to unthankful people. Share even with unthankful people because you're doing it for God and God is pleased with that. So the sacrifices we should be bringing is basically praise and thanksgiving and confession and then doing good and sharing. And remember Jesus said uh, when you give a banquet, banquet invite those who can't invite you back. When you give to the poor don't let everyone know what you're doing. Do it in secret because God sees what is done in secret and he will reward you. Um, don't just share with those who can share back. Share with those who can never repay you. Jesus said that God will repay you one day. Then verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Uh, and in this context he is speaking about church leaders because he says they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so here you see what the main purpose of a leader or an elder or a pastor would be it is to keep watch over the souls of the flock now that is just the most terrible responsibility that anyone could ever have but he says that is the responsibility of the leaders they have to keep watch over the souls of the flock and they have to give an account to God one day for what they did but he says to help them do that you must submit to them. You must obey them. It is incredibly difficult to pastor a church or to shepherd the people of God if the people don't want to listen, if they don't want to submit. Now, of course, in our day, submission is, oh, a very unpopular word. Wives don't want to submit to their husbands. And people don't want to submit to their leaders and they don't want to submit to the authorities, the civil authorities authorities that God has placed over them either but we must submit of course it's a verse which can easily be misused a leader shouldn't be going around oh submit to me, submit to me because the Bible says you must submit to me but scripture says to the flock to the people in church he says, obey your leaders. Don't make it difficult for them. Don't just run around being obstinate, doing your own thing. Now, if you see that a leader is not keeping watch over your soul, then go find a leader that does keep watch over your soul. Go find a leader that does care for your soul. But... I can tell you this. If you find a leader that cares for your soul, he's going to be difficult to live with. Because people don't want people prying into their private life. 
They don't want to speak about the secrets of their heart. We've got this mask we have to, this front we've got to keep up, you know. Good church person, grew up Christian, believe in God. I, I can't admit that I'm struggling, or that I'm doubting, or that I'm lost. I just have to pretend that everything is fine. Uh, so, this guy who wants to ask these questions, this guy who keeps me accountable to scripture, oh, no, no, I don't like that guy. Give me a guy who just preaches nice sermons on how to have a good life and much easier to live with. See, it's, it's difficult in one sense to live with leaders who really keep watch over your soul because they ask difficult questions. They, they, they are scratching where you don't want it to itch, but they have to scratch there to make sure that it's fine. They they have to examine you, they have to deal with you, they have to ask hard and difficult questions, and you have to submit to that. If you're just going to say, oh, this guy is too personal, he asks such difficult questions, you just say, oh, I'm going to go somewhere else, then you're making it impossible for those who have to keep watch over your soul to do it. He says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. If you are obstinate and rebellious in church and you just make it difficult for your leaders, he says, then you're going to bring grief to them. It's not going to be a joy for them to take care of your soul. And then it's not going to help you. It doesn't help you. It doesn't profit you being obstinate and rebellious in church. Now, of course, if the leader is outside the truth of Scripture, he needs to be rebuked. This is not talking about blind submission. But, everyone can't just be off doing their own thing. Everyone can't just be saying, oh, I don't want to Listen, I don't want to do it this way. I want to do it this way. There has to be submission. And just quickly, it's interesting how this parallels what Ephesians 5 says about the husband and the wife. Because Ephesians 5 says that the wife should submit herself to her husband, but it says that the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might purify her and present present her to himself spotless and blameless on the day of Christ. So a husband should be laying down his life that his wife might be found spotless and blameless on the day of Christ. A husband should be laying down his life for his wife so that she might follow Christ and know Christ and stand before Christ one day spotless and blameless. That's what he should be doing. He should and he should be working so hard at that that it is like dying. And then but the wife has to submit to her husband. There's a parallel in the ideas between verse seventeen here and Ephesians five just in case anyone wonders, the woman got off quite easily with submission. It's much easier to submit than to die so that someone else might stand before Christ holy and purified. Really? Just think about it. Um, so I just wanted to point out that that idea is there. God asks certain groups to submit themselves to other groups. Not that the other groups might lord over people, might rule over people, but so that the other groups might actually help people. Verse 18 says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. He says, Please do pray for us. We we are sure that we live with a clean conscience before men and before God. We do want to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Pray for us that God would help us to do that. Pray for us that we might fulfill the ministry of the Lord. Once again, the importance of keeping a good conscience.
conscience. If you stray from a good conscience, you can easily shipwreck your faith. Don't go into small little compromises. Don't ignore your conscience, even on small little things. Keep a good conscience before God and before men. Verse 19 says, I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Pray for us. I urge you to do this so that I might be restored to you all the sooner. What's he saying? He's saying, I really believe that God answers prayer. I believe that if you pray for me, I'll get back to you sooner. I'll be released. I will I will come to you sooner. <coughs> God does answer prayer. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that prayer changes things? Was prayer just a nice little add-on that you do because it has to be done? And then we get to the concluding farewell and this wonderful um, blessing which he blesses this, these people with he says now the God of peace so God is a God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant even Jesus our Lord so God raised Jesus from the dead Jesus is the big shepherd the great shepherd he is the shepherd over all the leaders over all the shepherds he is the great shepherd um, and he rose from the dead his blood is the blood of the eternal covenant a covenant which will not grow obsolete it's only outwardly Everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who partakes of this covenant, everyone who approaches God on the basis of this covenant is eternally, is, is guaranteed of eternal life. This is a covenant which will last for all eternity. And it says, Jesus our Lord. Jesus is not only the Savior, He's the King, He is the Lord. Now he says, may God who did this equip you in every good thing to do his will. You need to be equipped by God to do his will. You need the word, because 2 Timothy 3 verse 17 says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he's talking about all scripture being God-inspired, God-breathed, and profitable. So you need the Word to be equipped. You need the Holy Spirit to be equipped. But it is God who does the equipping. It says, now may God equip you in every good thing to do His will. So that's His wish for these people. And he says, And may God work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Because he, the writer, needs God just as much as these people he's writing to. Without God working in us, equipping us, strengthening us, we can do nothing. And the sooner you learn that, the better. The sooner you learn that you're nothing and you can do nothing and that God is everything and that He can do everything, the more you will progress in the Christian life. But God works all of this through Jesus Christ. It's not apart from Jesus Christ. God isn't busy dealing with people apart from Jesus Christ. God's purpose and plan for people are all is all bound up in Jesus Christ it's through Jesus Christ which we are equipped which we are reconciled to God which we are 
changed into the likeness of Christ so that we might live for God. And then he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. In the end, it's all about the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul ends his benedictions and his prayers in this manner so often. And I don't know who the writer to the Hebrews was, but it's the same you see here. It's all about the glory of God in the end. It's not about us, what we do for God. It's all about the glory of God in the end. And then he says, um, bear with me, bear with this urge, this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Um, so, it wasn't long. He says, don't, don't grow tired and weary. Um, it's only a short little message. Hmm, so, it's, I, I hear some, Unbelieving laughter there. So no, it's been a very long message. Um, but he's saying this is so, um, he's written about such great things so shortly. He's saying the weight, the glory of that which he is writing about is so amazing that really this letter, although it seems long to you, it's only a short letter. Um, and we have to remember that uh, I mean we're dealing with things which are of eternal weight and eternal consequence so we should be serious we should take pains with these things uh, it's you can write ten times as much about it as he has written and then it still won't be sufficient And then just some practical things. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon I will see you. And, this, and then greet all your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. You see it in these New Testament letters, the, the Christians knowing one another, seeming to almost personally know one another, even though they were separated far from one another. There was real love, real communion, real fellowship between the early Christians. Also, the, this personal part about his own well-being and the practical uh, things which have to be organized takes about two verses in this whole book, and it comes right at the end because it's just this. It's just like a little aside. A little P.S. Because it really isn't all about the writer. It's all about Jesus. And the glory of Jesus which he has written about in the book. And then he says, grace be with you all. Because without the grace of God we are absolutely nothing. But he loves these people he's writing to. That's why he says, oh may the grace of God be with you all. In the end it's not the good letter. Not the good writer that can keep these people. It's only God's grace. And he says, after everything I've said, it's only the grace of God which, you, which can keep you and I commend you to the grace of God.